So we are back after. I'm really proud of us. Only a few days. Like, wow. <laughs> we're we're like, really committed now. We're, we're I'm, I'm be a so committed that I'm in again. my closet recording. Uh, this sounds better, though. I like it. It's a very warm tone now yeah. for you. I'm glad because I know that there were some issues, you know, last week and that was my fault because I was, you know, in an open space and had the baby. But now I think that it sounds a little more like studio quality. Oh, well, that's what we need to do is get our respective institutions to sponsor us. You know, I do have access to a recording studio whenever I want in the School of Journalism. I've got one as well. Maybe we'll move that. I've got one I can get on campus as well. Maybe we should. Yeah, let's have another hoop for me to jump through. Um, (laughs) 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 No, no. I want our universities to like sponsor our podcast. Like, like. Anyway. Excuses from one class. No, yeah, right. Publicity for the university. That means they would have to actually take interest in the humanities. Um, Mm. I didn't say it. I didn't say that out loud because my institution would get really mad at me for that. For saying they don't care about the humanities? Right. My institution doesn't care about the humanities. No. At all. Like, it's an afterthought. I think they... Well, but it's also, like, advertised that way. Like, you're supposed to be going there for, like, STEM stuff. I suppose. But, like, uh, like I have a lit... (laughs) I have an undergrad who's majoring in lit in one of my classes right now. And she's, like, a unicorn. Right. (laughs) I'm like, what? I'm like, what are you... Are you tempted to be like, what are you going to do with that? Well, I kind of want to (laughs) say... Because that's what I got asked. I kind of want to... Well, and she's right out of high school. And I want to ask her, I'm like, what do your parents think about this? Like, Right. Her parents are mad. You got into UCSD, but you're majoring in lit, which isn't a bad thing. I'm not saying... I'm not saying anything like that. It's just very unexpected uh, from the students we have there. I think University of Florida, you have a lot broader... Yes and of, no. Yes and no. Well, as the main public university in the state, I think you have a broader spread of what people are interested in. Yes. Yes. But it's it's very STEM heavy, you know, and there's a lot of a lot of computer science and that kind of stuff. And it's because they're incentivized. Um, you know, there's a lot of programs and like compensation or covering of costs, et cetera, if you're involved in some sort of STEM field and a Florida resident. So a lot of them kind of just select into those majors because they get funding for it and it may not be their interest, but they're like, well, I want to, you know, have my education paid for. So and but then they still come got... to my class and they're like, Oh, I actually <laughs> like this. I'm like, great. But you've still got like a spread across the university. I mean, you've still got, I mean, it's interesting because you've got what big R1 land grant universities usually have um, mm-hmm. all the schools, including a school of journalism. Yes, we have a school of journalism. We do not have a school of journalism at the University of California, San Diego. Hmm. I'm sure one of the campuses does, though, right? Oh, yeah. Or more, one or more. Yeah, but we don't. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, anything you want to know about nanotech engineering, we've got that covered. And a lot of pre-med. I remember when I taught there, it was almost like, I want to be a doctor, I want to be a doctor. I'm like, we don't even need this money. Like, please. And then I that was pre-pandemic. Yeah. It's. I think the numbers of them wanting to be doctors has gone down since the pandemic started. I would imagine. I wouldn't want to be a doctor. Um, but but back to journalism. We're going to continue our our series today, right? Yes, we news. are. Part two on the, on the news, and I think that we're going to. I mean, if 
it's going where I think. I think we might end up back to our favorite topic of conspiracy theories. I think we might. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, let's get into it. Hello and welcome to An Incomplete History. I'm Hillary. And I'm Jeff. We're your hosts for this weekly history podcast. All right. So you have some flooding. No, fire. There's a fire in Florida. That's what? Is that anywhere near you? I didn't know there was a fire here. Uh, but as I said earlier, I'm literally in a closet right oh, now. Okay. So I wouldn't know. I mean, it was on. It made my news feed yesterday, <laughs> surprisingly okay. enough. Was it? What what's the cause of it or where? Uh, it's or? a wildfire. I don't know. I did not see the name of it. It, it is in North Florida. I did you know? know? So there's a lot of forests here, which I know you know, yeah. and I'm sure you know this. Ocala but I'm National wondering, Forest. Yeah, there are bears in Florida. Yeah, I did not know that. Yeah, I was driving and there was a sign that was like bear crossing, and I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> what? There are bears. Do you know who? Do you know what else there are in Florida? Alligators. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, obviously, I know that. But panthers. That makes sense. That makes sense. Bears. I wasn't expecting bears, but anyway, there's a, everything that can kill you is in Florida. We're like the Australia of the United States. Uh... You don't think that there's more things here that can kill you than other states? I mean, you do have coral snakes, but coral snakes to kill you, you have to like shove your finger in their mouth, basically. <laughs> well, and then we have the like the python situation. But those aren't. Just but that's not a native. Run with right. pythons. But that's not a native species, so that's a little bit different situation. That's still in Florida and still can kill you. Yeah, it is, but it's not. It's, it's yeah. We can talk about that one day because that was due to global warming, basically that there. Are, that there are now an invasive species of pythons in the state of Florida. Although you've had some chilly weather this winter. Um, we had some chilly weather, yeah. But also a result of global warming, just the instability of climate here. Now it's very nice day today. What about you? Pretty Can't nice. Stay? We had some rain yesterday and the day before, which is always welcome. Um, got a little chilly last night. Chilly for us. Southern mm. California chilly. Not like chilly for the rest of humanity, but... Right. We're six and a half minutes in talking nonsense. Yeah. Well, people people <laughs> say they like us to do this little kind of weather check-in and all this stuff. Weather but let's get to the news. Check-in. So, all right. so uh, do we want to continue this chronological thing or do we want to jump to kind let's of- Let's talk about off- it more broadly. Okay. Yeah. I want to talk about the CNN effect. And then we okay. can kind of back yeah. inwards and out. So there, so there is this kind of idea- um, after the Gulf War, and we can talk about the Gulf War in 91, because I think it is a real watershed moment for the way the news is covered. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is this, there's this idea um, coming out of it that it broke what had previously been at most a two times a day news cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, so you had kind of, most metropolitan areas by you know the late 19th century 
had newspapers that either released in the morning or in the evening or afternoon. Um, some of the larger newspapers had a, a day edition and an evening edition. Uh, and to kind of be up on the news, you wanted to subscribe maybe to both so you could keep up to date. Well, and that's newspapers, on. right? Those so are newspapers. I love that the shift happens, right, between newspapers and print media and then the way we consume news changes so rapidly. Well, so even early broadcast news starts to break it a little bit, but not on a national... What about radio? Well, I think radio is this odd thing because radio initially, they try to pattern kind of after newspapers. and It just doesn't work very well. But most of the news that came out of World War II is happening either on the radio or in the cinema. Right. I mean, uh, besides newspapers, well, of course. Right. So, I mean, I would say this. For at least in the United States, for the first few years of the war, the news is very curated about the war. Oh, I think for the whole time it's curated. Um, it is, but I think there's a moment. Guadalcanal is like a big turning point. Right, right. Where... FDR to kind of bolster support at home and also encourage the public to kind of keep giving, you know, their service, sacrificing kind of uh, to all these things that, that FDR kind of lets images of dead Marines on a beach be released. Well, the United States was getting their ass kicked for the first six months of the war when they entered after Pearl Harbor. And that was heavily curated. Right. It wasn't well, until midway that you see a real turning point in the war going in our favor. I would but, I would say Battle of the Coral Sea is the turning point because I think something happens there. Um, it turns out the U.S. has better aircraft carriers than Japan does at that point. Right, right, right. Um, and we're able to kind of service them. And, and, it, and Pearl Harbor... I mean, we can get into a whole thing about that. It's so funny because like... But that's how, I mean, but it's it's all in relation to the news and how it's being covered. And what's interesting is like, even, you know, 75 years later, we can say like, well, I don't know if that's the case. I don't know if that's the case. And that's, that is what we do as historians. We go back and we read the news mm -hmm. sources. We listen to the old broadcasts. We watch the old cinema pieces. And then we come up with our opinions on how it happened. So like, this is kind of a real time showing of how we work through the issues, well, right? And we are and we are skeptical about things like news reports, but we're not dismissive out of hand. And I know you and I have had private conversations about this before. At the end of the day, so say there's a news story that comes out about something going on during the war. Um and it turns out that after kind of historical research, we find out it really doesn't isn't grounded in any truth. There's no kind of reality behind it that it's clearly propaganda, right? And and that's a whole other thing about news as propaganda. But for the people who consumed it at the time, it was their version of what the truth was. And you've got to reconcile that somehow, right? You've got to say, okay, well, maybe it turns out there was never this happening. Well, but people at the time thought it was, and they operated under that assumption. Um, the same can be said for right now, right? Well, yeah. So, so here's the thing: is in the era of fake news, hashtag fake news, hashtag fake news. I mean, I think a lot of the 20th century 
is really the story of the federal government in using its various organizations and institutions within it, trying to very carefully curate the news and not necessarily knowing how to respond as that changed, as it changed from print media to radio, as it changed from radio to television, as it changed from broadcast television to cable television, and as it changed to the internet, World Wide Web, and social media. It's interesting because the the governments always seem to want to kind of be able to control it, but they haven't quite understood at times how to do that. And I think what we're seeing now, I mean, here's the thing is what's going on in Ukraine right now. Um, social media is really important. Right. Well, yeah, but what we're seeing is that in real time, we're watching how the news is curated by each nation based on their national interests. And we're very critical of what's going on in Russia for good reason. They've banned Facebook. They've banned Twitter because the Russian government understands the danger of um, not being able to curate their news. And then they have a you know national broadcast, et cetera. And we're very critical of that. But I don't know if we're as critical of ourselves in that process either, because, you know, it's not like, oh, just the bad guy does this. Right. And it's I have this conversation with students about World War Two, about propaganda. Um, propaganda isn't just a product of the enemy. Right. Propaganda happens here. And I think, you know, to be able to kind of step back and say, well, what is being curated to us? What is being shown to us and for what reason is really important? And. I get really nervous about like the censorship uh, on either side, well, right? And the and the censorship is is a long story, right? I mean, we talked last episode about how even before the United States is an independent nation, there's this colonial governors are trying to censor the news or do shutting publications down. But I mean, going back to the Gulf War, and, and I think this is the Gulf War is such a pivotal moment in many ways, um, but for the news and the way the news is consumed, it's such a pivotal moment. I mean, January 16th, 1991, we start to get these live reports via CNN of, of Operation Desert Storm. 30 years ago. Wow, I can't believe Operation Desert Storm was 30 years ago. But it's this real time kind of news that's being generated and to the public, it seems like we're getting everything. Like we're seeing an unfiltered view of this war in progress. Now, what we actually know is happening is this, the Pentagon is having briefings constantly and they're embedding journalists. So they're taking journalists and putting journalists in with groups in with military units and with personnel in different places, which isn't necessarily new. We have this in World War II, right? We have this um, not quite really in Vietnam, and we can talk about the media in Vietnam as well. I mean, I, I would say the news is instrumental in ending that conflict for the United States. But Well, that's the thing is when you shift from print media to a visual 
and you see mm-hmm. it in World War II in the cinema, but that those are like curated films that they're mm-hmm. showing and they're called newsreels and I, they're fascinating. You can look at a lot of newsreels up on YouTube, but like they're very curated. But when you see a visual of war and you're not yeah. just reading about war, I think that's what shifts the American mindset toward from conflict, right? Like, mm-hmm. and after World War II, the United States, every conflict the United States has been a part of has not been widely supported by the public because you actually can see what's going on. Mm-hmm. And I think that the, the support decreases substantially um, once not, you, you can't just see what's going on, but then you also have the internet come into play and you're getting really kind of unfiltered reporting about what's happening and it, but it's also unchecked. Right. Mm-hmm. So the, the issue though, is when there's a real strict tight control over what's printed and how it's printed and what's being said, et cetera, people are a little less invested. And I don't want to say apathetic, but the United States was rather apathetic to world war two and still until Pearl Harbor happened. Right. So, you know, the, the news and, you know, whether, when it shifts from print to visual, um, I think that that's what really shifts the American mindset. And I don't think that the government was prepared for that shift and prepared for how to handle it. And I think that they're constantly scrambling to figure that out, much like other governments are doing mm-hmm. in real time. We're watching it. So this so this CNN effect that I brought up earlier. So the CNN effect I- idea is this. It's this notion within the Pentagon that now they have to change the way they do things because of this kind of omnipresent media. And the ability of the media to kind of do these things. And and the competition between, right? That's the thing with the CNN effect. So for a while, CNN is kind of the only story in town as far as as a 24-hour news channel. But that starts to change with the introduction of Fox News. And then uh, Microsoft does this partnership with NBC. They create MSNBC. And we kind of get a real flowering of this, um, of all these different news sources and the competition is very reminiscent of the competition between Hearst and Pulitzer, right? Where if it bleeds, it leads. So you get yeah, this ratchet, you get this ratcheting up of stories, right? So it's yeah, like it's the yellow journalism of the 19th century is nothing new. I mean, the fact that OJ Simpson's slow ride <laughs> down the freeway. In his Bronco. That's one of my earliest memories. Well, it is. It's pointed out as one of the other kind of pivotal moments, right? Everybody yeah. looks at this. Everybody watches this. And it's 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 an interesting phenomenon. You've got that. And you've got baby Jessica. Baby Jessica is the other kind of thing. So you've got kind of this crime thing. You've got this domestic. Who's baby tri- Jessica. Baby Jessica fell down. Oh, who's baby? Were you not okay, alive? Okay, I baby do Jessica? not know about oh baby God. Jessica. Please. So Jessica, she in 1987. See, I wasn't um, alive. I don't. I didn't see baby Jessica in 1987. She fell down a well. Oh dear. Uh, in Midland, Texas, and um, 18 months old, and the the public was just riveted by this That's story. So sad. Oh my God. Mo, she was saved. She was saved. Oh, good. Um, but it was a real nail biter, and people tuned in to CNN to get constant updates on Baby Jessica. Um, now the issue is this with the CNN effect. So the 
the Pentagon's making decisions now based on this idea that there's this 24-hour news cycle. The 24-hour news cycle, like CNN, Fox, NBC, they have to fill that news space with stuff. So the accusation starts to come that maybe they're not manufacturing stories, but they're certainly covering certain things in a way that wouldn't have been done before. And it is interesting when there's like a slow news day, which we haven't seen in years. Um, but when there's a mm-hmm. slow news day, what we they did do have end one, up covering and zooming in on. We did have one uh, early September, 2001. It was a very slow news period, the end of August, the beginning of September. And CNN was like covering these shark attacks off the coast of Florida. What's going on? Why are these shark attacks happening? What's going on? Sharknado. <laughs> and then, like, they, hit the, the and then they hit the news jackpot. Oh and God, it, it's horrifying though, isn't it? It sickens me. Yeah. To that, there see, was 24-hour coverage. It was... Yeah. And it, it definitely playing... Playing the footage of the second plane hitting the World Trade Center, playing the footage of the World Trade Center is on fire, playing the footage of them collapsing, warning viewers the following video features graphic images. That's not a warning sign. That's like a clarion call. To right. like, it's like a tune in, everybody. Pay attention. Look up from right, whatever you're right. doing and pay it's- attention because we're going to show you some dead people now. Right, right. Or some people in the process of dying. Yeah. I mean, doing that, playing that over and over again, I think it really does gin up American enthusiasm for an intervention against someone. And we don't really care against whom. Um, but if you think about the generation who grew up with that and, you know, being selfish and talking about myself, but like, that is what I grew up with. Mm-hmm. Seeing non... So my very earliest memories are watching the OJ chase Mm-hmm. And then subsequently the trial, mm-hmm. then the Jean Benet case, right? These, these very, those are very early memories for me. But then, you know, I, I was 12 when 9-11 happened. It was 24-hour news coverage. Mm-hmm. My whole life, I mean, like my whole life has been that. And so you have to think of my generation and the generations after me, right? You have the Gen Zs who are now coming after who are just a whole different breed of human. Um <laughs> well, I they get wonder. their news. They get their news via TikTok. I that's what I told you. Remember, I was saying I mm-hmm. I have a news. I asked some project. students after yeah. you told me that. I asked mm-hmm. my students. I was like, "Where do you get your news from?" And it boiled down to they get it from TikTok. And I was they a little, do, yeah. I was a little horrified. Um, well, and I stand by what I said last week. It's like whatever gives them an introduction into taking an interest in a topic, I think is great. But they do they stop there. It mm-hmm. begins and ends at yeah. TikTok. And that's where the problem is. But anyway, like growing up with that 24-hour news cycle and always kind of craving the next chaos, um, the the news networks, they compete with one another, the, the yellow journalism kind of stuff, they compete with one another to find like the latest tragic thing. But it's it's highly curated as to what they cover because there's always atrocities happening in the world, but it's like, which ones do we choose to pinpoint and which ones do we not? Well, I mean, so here, so my earliest engagement with the news 
is me laying on the living room floor as my parents would watch Walter Cronkite at night about, and they would play stuff that had happened in the Watergate trial that day. Um, which so, but I, it's like coverage later on. It's not live, right? It's not live coverage. So, I mean, it, it wasn't live, but it felt live. <laughs> like the whole thing is, is these Senate hearings are taking place when everybody's at work. Um, but they're being recorded and you could watch them. And my, I mean, I just remember it was so funny because um, my dad would yell at the TV. Like he would like yell at like different senators and tell them to ask the right questions. And, um, but I mean, that was my earliest memory. And, and really the news at that point, it didn't, come back around. I mean, there are sensational moments all through kind of the seventies and early eighties through the mid eighties with like the cold war and the invasion of the Iran hostage crisis, the Iran hostage crisis. It's there, but it's a very interesting thing because I feel again, the media gets, the media is all on the same page very quickly. And the media really is only newspapers in your nightly news and the radio. That's the media. It's not, it, you know, you get the national news and then the local news on television at night and you get kind of newspapers and you get radio. And that was pretty much it. Like there really wasn't, so there wasn't a lot of time that was devoted in a household to kind of consuming information about it. But the media got on the same page very quickly about it and it was all, I mean, it was very much a, an idea that you had to support the hostages, right? And, and so there wasn't any kind of real investigative journalism going on about, well, what led to this? <laughs> Maybe what did the United States do that has Iran so upset? Harvey's getting very enthusiastic about this. So that's interesting, you know, because I discussed the Iran hostage crisis in class the other day, and I was showing footage from it and NBC nightly news footage. Um, and it, it wasn't to me, I know I see what you're saying. Look, there's only one side that you can be on and that's for sure what's happening, but the sensational nature of it though, like we're on day 23 of the Iran hostage crisis here in the United States. We are, you know, tuning in to see what the latest is, you know, and it's very sensationalized. And I, I mean, not to say that this wasn't a serious situation. Of course it was. But like I could see in that moment in 1979, 1980, like it being very um, almost almost gleeful. Right. Like that there, there, there's excitement surrounding it and everybody should be really invested in this. And I think that you can only do that to a certain extent with a newspaper. Like there are ma major headlines and we talked about the history of that last time about, you know, even creating headlines and stuff and that coming out of that era, you know, the Pulitzer, um, Hearst era, and you can drum up kind of some excitement over it, but there's something different about like the visual news media. And I think like sensationalism, well, well, there's not two sides necessarily to that situation. You can see the, um, the urgency with which they want to report this. And there's like an excitement and a quick speaking, um, very serious tone. And 
And I kind of see how that, that moment kind of shifts it, but you're right. Like there's a big lull and you don't really start getting the 24 hour thing until around um, the OJ Simpson trial, kind of the Gulf war, but it's not until the early to mid nineties that you see the 24 hour coverage of it, but you can see kind of the, the genesis of it with major incidents that happen. And I think the Iran hostage crisis is one major event that happens prior to that cycle really taking off, but you can see kind of the underpinnings of how it's going to go. So I'm going to disagree about the the sensationalism for the Iran hostage crisis. Um, I don't remember it being perceived that way. I actually, what I really remember about it was if you think about the United States from a foreign policy perspective from the mid seventies to the late seventies, it's a shit show. Um, the United States pulls out of Vietnam. You have the fall of Saigon. Um, and that's in 1975. 75. Shortly before that, you have kind of the resignation of the president of the United States, a president who had had uh, who had won re-election with one of the most lopsided victories in electoral history. Um, you have um, a this stagflation at home, which Harvey's getting very interested in stagflation. So you have stagflation at home, which in the seventies was a lot worse than what we're suffering now. I mean, this is, the inflation we're suffering now is the worst we've had in a long, long time in this country. But stagflation is wages are steady. Wages aren't rising at all, but the cost of everything is increasing. Um, and that's exactly what's going on right now. It is going on right now, but it's the, the amount is much higher in the seventies than it is right now. Um, and you, I mean, it's so, it gets so desperate I mean, you have really high interest rates on loans. Oh, like the high interest rates are crazy at that time. Um, yeah. I mean, so you've got that. You've got the political situation with Nixon's resignation. You've got the fall of Saigon. Um, you've got, uh, you're still kind of reeling. The oil crisis. You're still reeling under the whole energy crisis. Mm -hmm. And then this comes along and it just seems like, Yet again, something bad is happening, and there's a real questioning of we can't even protect personnel at an embassy, a place you're never really supposed to attack. Kind of the unspoken rule internationally right. is you're not supposed to attack embassies. Yeah, the rules are out there. Um, you can you can kick people out. You can mm -hmm. uh, you can kick diplomats out of the country, but you're not supposed to actually attack an embassy. Now, the argument comes that it's not the Iranian government that attacks the embassy. It's actually students during the revolution that are doing it. Right. Um, but at one point, the government really does become kind of involved in it. Um, well, so I like that you're, you're disagreeing from a standpoint of you were living and watching this happen. And it was I like very, that. It was grim like, and serious. It was what did very you serious. 
It was very, well, I mean, we would watch it and yeah, the news every night would start off with day blah, blah, blah of the hostage crisis. Right. And it so that's was, what I'm coming at it from is like, I'm showing clips of this and I'm, it, it's out of context, right? Like I'm not living in that moment day to day to day. Like I'm not living grim. through the fall of Saigon. So that's what I'm saying is like, I was watching those just last week and I go, wow, this is really interesting in terms of like trying to have moment to moment coverage of a crisis, mm -hmm. but it's not 24 hour, but they really are trying to like zero in and sensationalize. And I don't, I mean, I don't, I don't know. Sensationalize isn't nice because it sounds like it's like overblowing something serious. Like this was a serious situation. No, but, but I, there I, is like a, a level of excitement toward it. You know what I'm saying? See, I don't think there is. I don't think there is that level of excitement to it. I think it's a it's a kind of a collective level of horror. Um, yeah, but that's it. That's exactly what I'm saying. No, no, no. no but the, it's but like the, the the voyeurism. Because uh, I, I think there's a change, and I think here's the thing: you can contrast that the hostage crisis, contrast it with something that happens my senior year in high school, which is the Challenger disaster. Um, wow, CNN played. The Challenger That's exploding horrifying. about a million times. That's horrifying. Yeah. And the yeah. and the interesting thing is almost any so any person who was a, a K through twelve student in the United States in 1986 saw that thing happen real time because we were all watching it because Krista McAuliffe was on it. Mm. who was a oh, teacher. Oh, she was an elementary school she teacher. She was a teacher. Right. And it was all... Oh, my God. They just, like, broadcasted it to all of your classrooms? I mean, they would wheel in. You knew you were in a treat for... You were in for a treat for the day when the TV got reeled in. Oh, yeah. Um, That's exciting. Um, so the TV gets real, wheeled in, and, you know, we're watching it, and then this thing blows up, and, and nobody knew what to say. No. Um, That's horrifying. And the reporters on CNN didn't really know what to say like everybody was kind of dumbstruck yeah, they weren't anticipating disaster it was supposed well, to be this exciting wonderful moment right and i think that's the difference is cnn afterwards as they kind of report on that continuing story about what went wrong and all these things mm -hmm. they show that clip over and over again for the hostage crisis I don't know whether curating, um, uh, you know, I don't do kind of late 20th century U.S. foreign policy as a, as a field of research, but I don't know whether the, the government's curating some of what the media does with it, but it, it's very somber. It's a much more somber kind of approach to it. And the, and the kind of leading with like it's day whatever of the hostage crisis is is a reminder and it's this decision to not let people forget because as news trickles down to virtually nothing i mean there are weeks long period where there's just no progress there's no progress in anything and as you get to those moments in that hostage crisis that countdown as a reminder look this is still going on whether or not you remember it and it's funny because it's it's other media takes up this kind of daily reminder thing later on keith oberman famously does it on msnbc with the war in iraq right so in 2003 the united states invades iraq um a, a sovereign nation um <laughs> under the under the pretext that it 
either had something to do with 9-11, which it definitely did not, it didn't, yeah. or that they were in the possession of weapons of mass destruction. Which they were not. Um, the first Gulf War was a response to Iraq invading Kuwait. Mm-hmm. Now, we can talk about why Iraq invaded Kuwait. Kuwait used something called slant drilling. And they were actually drilling into Iraqi land to get oil. Um and the Iraqi government had kind of warned them numerous times to stop this. But, I mean, Saddam Hussein was not a nice guy. He was an authoritarian figure. And, and this was his chance to kind of f- flex his muscles against this little weak nation. And there was really a huge international coalition that came together to invade Iraq, to first liberate Kuwait and then invade Iraq and punish Saddam Hussein for that. Um but Saddam Hussein was not removed from power, right? That was not part of Desert Storm. 2001, we invade Afghanistan because Afghanistan was actually where the Taliban, uh, not the Taliban, the um, Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda yeah. the, the, the terrorist group that was responsible for 9-11, that's where they were operating out of. So it actually made sense. And, and Afghanistan- it make sense to invade the entire country? Well, Afghanistan was many, in many ways a failed state, right? It was a, a state that was this terrorist group kind of did whatever they want there. The Taliban it was a tribal was, society, though it was it like operated off of tribalism, and we invaded like the entire territory. Well, but the 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 Taliban itself is doing things that, interestingly enough, we haven't felt like getting involved in up until that moment, right? So mm-hmm. they're destroying these right. world heritage sites. There's this right. famous mass executions in soccer stadiums. In soccer stadiums, right? right soccer stadiums right. that have been built to kind of provide entertainment right. now are providing spectacle of public executions. They're yeah, religious extremism. They're destroying these huge, um, you know, thousand year old statues of the Buddha um, because that's an affront to Islam. They're, they're doing all these things. The United States didn't really feel in, like getting involved in any of that, but nine 11 happens and there is kind of a clear link between the territory of Afghanistan and Al-Qaeda. I, I will forever defend the United States' decision to invade Afghanistan. Um, it, it made We were there for 20 years and nothing. Well, okay. Jeez. I'm not defending the United States being there for 20 years. But I'm saying you had to go in there to kind of destroy or at least... Uh, disarm al-Qaeda. 2003, a couple of years later, we invade Iraq. And these weapons of mass destruction, the media covers it, right? Colin Powell is getting up and he's showing these pictures and he seems uncomfortable with it. But the rhetoric coming out of the White House and the rhetoric that all media outlets are really using seem to be implying that Saddam Hussein was somehow involved in 9-11, which is just patently false. Right. And they all had that kind of that slant to them. You know, mm-hmm. Fox News more so, but it did I remember this coverage and it was always kind of the implication trying to talk us all into thinking that this was an appropriate response. When and we all started figuring out though, because I remember being like, no, that's not true. Mm-hmm. I remember 
being mad about it, having arguments with people about it, right? It's like, that's not true. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, it, that was kind of like a crack in the facade. Right. So the United States invades Iraq, and this time, there's not a broad international coalition involved in this invasion. In fact, it's a very narrow group of countries that support the United States. France famously really opposes it. And this is why there's a proposal at the in the capital, the U.S. Congress makes a proposal to change the name of French fries on the congressional Freedom. menu to Freedom, Freedom fries. fries. That was such a joke. Well, but I mean, it's a like very... We still make such a joke well, about it's, Freedom it, Fries. And, and then the war just gets rolled into the broader war against terror. And it's like, okay, but <laughs> sure. Um, it's all this like Islamophobia and... Yeah. And, and what's interesting is that war kind of, it happens and it fades out of people's kind of memory day-to-day -day. Day -day yeah. existence pretty quickly and people like keith Oberman and others pick it up and start using that reminder right it's day blah 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 of the war um because they don't want people to forget but you know that <sighs> but we become completely apathetic to it and that is part of the curation because mm -hmm. we're dead ass wrong yeah dead ass wrong in being there and part of the curation is to look away, look away, don't cover it every single day. And it's exactly what the Russians are doing right now. Yeah. Well, trying to say, oh, there's a military operation in Ukraine. Look away. This is not something to think about. Yeah. That was what happened in our news media in the early and early 2000s of just get it off of your mind, get it off of the, you know, because if had they been showing footage every single day of what was going on there, we wouldn't have been there for 20 years. Well, there's the decision in the White House that they're not going to show bodies being brought back to the United States with flags on the coffins. Right. right. Um, because back to my earlier comment, Walter Cronkite, CBS news, I think is instrumental in ending the U S involvement in Vietnam for a couple of reasons. First of all, I've, I've gushed about Walter Cronkite before. Um, he's amazing. He was like grandpa on the television telling you what was going on and you could kind of trust him. And there is a moment where he says it is a quagmire and there is no way this is going to end well. At the same time, they start to show these images of dead U S soldiers and the public's perception shifts. And it's too late for Nixon's administration to fix that, right? It's too late for Johnson's administration. And then when Nixon comes in, it's too late for him. Um, newspapers are pretty relentless in their coverage of things like um, his the bombings that he orders and things. The public's opinion about that war shifts very quickly. Um, the Pentagon in the first Gulf War and Operation Desert Storm have this kind of symbiotic relationship with the media and CNN and Fox news or CNN, mostly CNN really benefits from this war. They have a huge explosion in uh, a kind of explosive growth. Um, and a lot of it stems to coverage of this war and many of the personalities that become important for decades afterwards on CNN kind of come to public awareness during this moment, right? 
2003 conflict is a lot more different. And, you know, the media is covering it, but the way they're covering it starts to really split. And while most of the 24-hour news networks all are supportive of it initially, there starts to be a real division. And you can look at the way MSNBC covers it, the way somebody like Keith Overman covers it, and the way somebody on Fox News, Sean Hannity, for example, covers it. There's a real division there. And I think that is the moment. But the I think, cynical side of me... Go ahead. That is the moment. Well, I think 2003, or not 2003, I think a couple of years later, probably 2006-ish, so, I think that's where people start to consume the 24-hour news cycle, just like they consumed newspapers back in the 19th century, where they read the source that's going to confirm their ideas and opinions, Mm -hmm. and they ignore the one that runs counter to those things. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I guess what I want to say is that we come back around to the same thing. And now with social media, we are to the same position, right? I mean, there was a whole... What was the name of the app that was the social media platform that was created because people were getting booted off of like parlor parlor, which became kind of look, if you oppose liberals and you support Donald Trump, you need to join parlor. Um, I mean, it's, it's interesting that social media is kind of segmenting the same way. Or that at least there's been an attempt. So I don't think it's complete, right? Because I think things like TikTok and Instagram and even Facebook or Meta. Do we call it Facebook still? I I can't call it Meta. I refuse. Um, it's just not going to happen. Uh, and I, I laugh because things do change names. And I mean, those... I still call Qualcomm Jack Murphy Stadium. So um, I don't even go there. Well, it doesn't exist anymore. I did not, neither one exists. Yeah. <laughs> Um, there's a new stadium there now um, that was built from the ground up. So, yeah. But it's already there. Yeah. Shut up. Yeah. Really? I thought the other one just got demolished. No. Nope. I'm sorry. This is this is a complete. This is a San Diego. This is. Yeah. Things change. San Diego. Also, well, another San Diego news, totally unrelated. We've replaced San Francisco as the most important, expensive city to live in the United States. Oh, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Um, our real estate prices are crazy here. But. But like social media, I think there's this attempt. Parler was an attempt to kind of create a parallel set of social media for people to kind of segregate themselves into. I don't think it worked, which is interesting because I think for social media, we're still in a point where pretty much everybody turns to kind of the same general body of sources. Well, but okay. So the cynical part of me, though, says like, what is the narrative today? Right. Like there's a narrative no matter across the board, right? Like Fox, CNN, MSNBC, which people still consume pretty heavily. There's a narrative for the day and then they fight with one another or they don't fight with one another, but they have different viewpoints on that. And people are in a vacuum and they listen to one or the other. And that's the narrative for the day. But then when the narrative just shifts all of a sudden, then that story goes out the window. So, and I, I'm not a conspiracy theorist and I'm not trying to, you know, I don't know. I, I'm not trying to cause a problem here, but like, okay, February 4th of 2022, almost 4,000 people died of COVID that day. Mm -hmm. 
Almost 4,000 people died. 3,976 people died of COVID that day. And at, at certain points, there were over 4,000 deaths a day. That wasn't the narrative anymore. People were tired of hearing about that. You know, and like, I talked to someone the other day, and I won't mention any names, who said something like, oh, well, COVID's not really a problem anymore. Uh, no, it is. People are still dying every day, but like, it's not the constant news cycle because now it's like, yay, World War Three, right? Like there, there's a narrative that's set. And, and I don't, I don't want to say that that's controlled by the government. I don't think it is necessarily. It's controlled by these corporations who all own the news network. I mean, are you saying Russia, Russia's invasion of Ukraine is manufactured by the news? No, no, they're, not at all. Their focus on it. Their I mean, focus on it see, I think draws viewers. Uh, but I think their focus on it has been pretty crappy. I don't. Have, but did you see the Applebee's commercial that was airing in the middle? It's like Russian invasion of Ukraine. And it's like Applebee's two for 20. Woo. Like it was, everyone was making fun of it online. But like, no, of course this is news. Of course this is a huge shit show and we need to know about it and, and, and all that, of course. But I'm saying the narrative shifts so rapidly. And it is connected to like the advertisers and the money and who's drawing in the viewers because people got tired of hearing about COVID. More people have been dying of COVID every day than did at the start of the pandemic. Well, that's the inevitable that's what I'm result saying, of Omicron, right? Once you get, even if the percentage dying is a lower percentage, since the raw numbers are so much higher, you're going to have an upswing in that. And they predicted this, right? When Omicron came in, they said, look, February and March, you're going to see a spike in deaths and it's going to be probably the highest deaths we're going to have. But do you remember the first coverage of the pandemic to March 2020? I remember February 2020, them talking about something going on in China. Yes, but I'm saying the wall to wall coverage right around this time, two years ago, yeah, was pandemonium well so there's this news fatigue phenomenon so news fatigue gore vidal famously called us the united states of amnesia that we forget things um, but we also have a pretty short attention span when it comes to certain things we get bored with it but that's my point about the news oh that's exactly my point that it takes advantage of that or it fosters that it fosters that I think okay. it fosters and encourages that. And I think that even things like TikTok, where it's like you get a 30 second of something and then you can scroll to somebody dancing, mm-hmm. like it fosters that and it feeds off of that. And it, it feeds off of our psychology of like wanting to go like for the negativity, right? We like thrive off of that chaos, but then we like, it's like ups and downs of being like stimulant, depressant, stimulant, depressant. And like, the news media, I think, really capitalizes on that and like draws us in. And it's what creates viewers and then what drives advertising and what drives the, the co- you know, the, the profits that are being huge amounts of profits from this. Right. So what from I'm our- hearing you saying is that Hearst and Pulitzer basically set the template. Absolutely. And we've actually, just- but it wasn't, it wasn't possible with print media. In the same way that it's possible here. I think it happened, but I don't think that it was as, um, I don't know, like as all-consuming 
You know, mm. like it was like you get a paper once a day and it consumes you and then you spend a lot of money twice. and you're spending money well, on paper, right? Sometimes thinks, twice a day yeah, if you were first hopes you're doing it. Well, I, it, it becomes, uh, I think it becomes more than just wealthy people doing it. I mean, that's Hearst's dream is for everybody to buy two papers a day. But um, even if you buy two papers a day, 24 hours of your day is not consumed by being bombarded with these images. Right. Right. That's you log true. into social media, you're, you, whatever you do, you turn on TV, you turn on your radio, whatever, like you are consistently bombarded with this and the profits that come from it are, are pretty insane profits. And again, it's, this isn't a conspiracy necessarily, but it's like a, let's step back and realize that this is what's been going on. And it's been going like the groundwork was laid a long time ago. That's the whole thing too. Like this isn't a brand new mm -hmm. phenomenon. The groundwork was laid and technology has made it. So this is like the most successful iteration. Well, so I think an interesting thing that's happened, returning our conversation to the current conflict. Um, Elon Musk comes in and, brings these the Starlink stuff because there's a recognition into Ukraine because there's a recognition that this is a new way to cover a conflict via these kind of this dispersed network via social media. And for many and in many ways it's somewhat unfiltered, right? But that keeping internet connectivity alive was going to be crucial to this. Keeping those pictures and those videos streaming into the West so people don't forget, so they don't get fatigued too soon about this situation, that they keep things up. That it, it, And this is what I think Putin was counting on, that the West would lose interest in this relatively quickly. And I think we're still too early in in the conflict to tell whether he's going to end up being right or not. I would say this, the uh, CNN, Fox, MSNBC, I think they have all failed abysmally in their coverage of the war in Ukraine. Um, in the, in the stuff that they're doing themselves. Um, I think, uh, kind of the places I look for foreign policy news, do a slightly better job, but those are written, those are journal, those are kind of newspaper sources like the Washington Post or their magazines or journals like Foreign Policy. They can't update their stuff very often or a Washington Post story, even if they're posting stories a couple of times a day, there's still kind of a, a real delay there. But that's the point. Shouldn't there be? Shouldn't there be a delay to truly understand and to fact check and provide accurate coverage. Because what I love about the internet and social media and I hate about it at the same time is like, you can get like second to second updates depending on who you're following. Have you watched, have you watched any live cameras? Yeah. Oh my gosh. On TikTok. Oh no, no, no. Yeah. I'm talking, no, I'm talking about live cameras. Just like, so there's, there's a couple that I look at a few times a day in Kiev itself, right? It's like, oh, okay. yeah. and, oh, yeah, I've seen those. Yeah. Right. And, and it, for me, I actually appreciate that because it gives me a chance to look for you myself and see it. like, right, well, right. things I see cars driving around. I don't see any tanks. So Kiev hasn't been invaded yet, which is a good thing. 
Uh, the big church on the square is still there. It's, Do you it, see the bicyclist I mean, just like taking a little ride the other day? The cyclist just yeah. like biking through. <laughs> I mean, it's, but I, but that's what I mean by, I think it's an interesting kind of dispersed coverage because that tells a story, right? I mean, seeing Kiev not, 100% up in flames with Russian tanks rolling down the avenue. That tells you something. Yeah, but um, there's also regardless a of regardless of what like somebody like CNN is reporting. I mean, it's I'm going to tell you right now as a, us recording right now. Here is what CNN is CNN is saying. Um, this is like real time. Putin dials up threats against Ukraine and its allies. Well, uh, he's already threatened nuclear weapons. What? How do you dial up from nuclear weapon threats? What is what is dialing up from nuclear weapons look like? <laughs> how does one dial up from that? Fox News says, uh, get out now. Live updates. U.S. asks all Americans to leave Russia immediately as tensions with Putin grow. The Russian president says sanctions against his country are equivalent to a quote declaration of war as Moscow. Oh yeah, I issues saw that. No that came up warning. right before we yeah, right before we started um recording. That came up from the New York Times as a notification. Okay, but so the the problem though, there's there's good and there's bad with it, right? On the one hand, I love mm -hmm. getting like these live updates. Sometimes I'll see tweets or sometimes people will go live on TikTok or Instagram, et cetera, and you can kind of see what's going on there. But what I've also noticed about that is like, there's not really time to check it. There's not really time to say like, okay, is this actually what's going on? Um, and when you're thinking about the field of journalism, right? Like having a school of journalism, there's like, <laughs> believe it or not, like there's some integrity in that still, right? Mm -hmm. There's some integrity in journalism of like, we need to check the sources. Where is this coming from? Who is saying it? Why are they saying it? Um, and how do we relay this to the public? That there's a downfall in that because it could be curated, but then there's a downfall in the moment to moment news updates because sometimes misinformation spreads rapidly. And what studies have shown is that misinformation and fake news travels far quicker than a real story, right? And we saw this during the election in 2016 for sure, but that's what recent studies have shown is like fake news circulates at a far faster rate with far more consumption because it's trying to get the clicks. And so we're, I think we're in, you know, like I said, there's a pros and cons to it. Right. I, I mean, he, the immediacy of it is something we're still dealing with. And I think this is the same thing that happened with radio and with, well, even all the way back to the telegraph, right? The ability to, near instantaneously transmit information, it's an issue. And I'll go back to that book, Kern's Time and Space, where he basically blames World War One on technology that allowed the transmission of information at a rate we didn't really have institutions that could deal with that immediacy. So the immediacy, right? That's kind of what this all boils down to. There's always a competition for immediacy, mm -hmm. whether it's print media, radio, um, but I think this is always cycle, et cetera, social I'm, media. I mean, the modern modern journalism, I think this has always been the thing, right? You've got to be first to press on a story. Um, and if you're not, 
then you lose. Um, can you like cut corners um, to get there quicker? Right. But then what does that cause? I think it causes mm -hmm. like misinformation sometimes. Yeah. It's like you're getting the story wrong. You're not really having some time to reflect on it. And, you know, you're waxing on about Walter Cronkite. What would he have to say about social media news? What would he have to say about your students raising our students raising their hand and saying they get their news from TikTok? Again, I think it's a great entry point, but the danger is like that's where it begins and ends. I mean, it's funny. I am. So I, I read you CNN's headline, Washington Post, Putin's sanctions on Russia put Ukraine statehood at risk. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's interesting. The Washington Post is not, they are quoting the- That's kind of a lagging story though. Well, but they are quoting moves to punish Moscow akin to declaration of war, Russian leader says. So they've got, and they've got kind of a, a live feed there. Um the website as well. But I, I, I think you have to be careful in this current situation in any situation. Uh, um, you have to curate where you're getting your news from. Um, you have to understand and curate doesn't mean you pick something that confirms your own opinions. No, you curate, go and look a bunch of places. Curate you means you look at it and you say, okay, is, does this organization have a vested interest in depicting this story in a particular way? And if they do, you need to be aware of that. Um, but at the end of the day, they all have a, a purpose. Yes, they do. And they're all making a lot of money off of our... You kind of, but you have to kind of triangulate, right? I mean, let's just, out of fairness, let's, as our, to kind of continue this exercise here right at the end, let's see what Fox is saying. I went to Fox already and read the headline. Did you go to the breaking news section or just the Yes, general? I did. I did oh, the get out now thing. God. Get out now, yeah. Um, Is that fear mongering or what? Well, I mean, it's. I mean, it's a, a very serious bit. situation, no doubt. It but... is a serious situation, but they're not going to arrest Americans in Russia. I mean, Putin... they just did the basketball player, right? Well, yeah, but Putin knows. Um, MSNBC's is weird. God, it's an ugly sight. Um, why yeah. a no-fly zone for Ukraine would confirm Putin's deepest fears. Um, I mean, it's interesting. There's no super big, like, this is it headline. Um, mm -hmm. It's interesting. I mean, it's it's what I tell my students. You have to curate your news. You have to get it from multiple sources. You kind of have to triangulate it. Um, if you're, well, I want to read this. Why some white evangelicals are cheerleading Russia. Yes, please tell me why. Um. <laughs> Yes. Uh, just be co conscious. Be conscious of of where it's coming from. Who's writing it? Um, you know, if you if you you know if you're reading a Hearst like publication, realize there's yellow journalism going on. Probably right that there's mm -hmm. there's yeah. Understanding the history of it's important, right? Yeah. Knowing that this is not just a brand new phenomenon and that, you know, the whole, like, we're more divided now than ever. Like, we are divided, but we always have been. Well. Should we that... change the name of the episode to, like, Jeff and Hillary just talk about stuff? <laughs> no, it's just about the news. 
wow. Um, well, on that happy note, we're going to have a good end weekend. This. Yeah. Have a great weekend. Um, and we'll be back next week. Um, we have to discuss what we're going to talk about next week. Yeah. We'll do that after we finish recording. All right. Well, I'm Jeff. And I'm Hillary. Thanks for joining. Thank mm-hmm. you.